I'm Khalil Ankalona, and this is Nashville. Our city has a deep history with brothels. From the Civil War until just over 21 years ago, sex work in Nashville was big business. Printer's Alley and Division Street are just a few of the corridors, strip clubs, and massage parlors that offered undisclosed services operated at for decades before the authorities cracked down. Now there are bars and restaurants where those brothels once stood, and the traces of sex work and prostitution are all but wiped away from our tourist-filled downtown. But the history remains. Later this hour, we'll talk with a historian, journalist, former city official, and a sex worker about that history. But first, after a hearing last week, the Franklin Ethics Commission unanimously determined that Alderman Gabrielle Hansen had violated the city's ethics code. We're joined now by WPLN's general assignment reporter, Rose Gilbert, to learn more. Hey, Rose, welcome back. Hey, Khalil. Always good to be here. Always great to have you. Okay, so the Franklin Ethics Commission held a hearing for Hansen last week. What was that hearing about? Yeah, so this hearing was focused on an email that Hansen sent on June 5th to the president of BNA. Um, And in that email, she was asking him to withdraw support from a Juneteenth celebration put on by the Franklin Justice and Equity Coalition. Um, Or, she said, give an equal donation to another organization, the African American Heritage Society. And kind of what's crucial to note here is the Franklin uh, Justice and Equity Coalition was formed in 2020 in response to, you know, the the deaths of George Floyd, George Floyd Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey. Um, and Hansen, kind of from the beginning, really saw them as a very radical group. Um, and she makes that clear in her email. She calls says that they have a radical social justice agenda and says that they should have no voice in a town like Franklin. Mm. Um, and she kind of made it clear that she saw the African-American Heritage Society as a, a more palatable group, a more respectable group um, where money should be going. Um, and And... That is kind of what inspired this hearing. That's what drew complaints and got this hearing kicked off. All right. So what happened at the hearing? Yeah. So, um, you know, started with the people who filed the complaints, you know, given their testimony and all that jazz. Uh, Interestingly, Hanson was not there. Um, She was represented by her lawyer, Daniel Horowitz, uh, who really adopted one main strategy throughout the hearing. I'm moving to dismiss the complaints, and they should all be dismissed. This time, we renew the motion to dismiss these complaints. Let me move to strike the testimonies on sworn. I apologize. I don't mean to keep on interrupting you. I just need to interpose an objection to strike that testimony for uh, lack of personal knowledge and on the basis that it was not sworn. Yeah, so as you can hear there, uh, Hanson's lawyer, Horowitz, kept calling for pretty much any testimony against Hanson to be dismissed or stricken from the record. And one of the reasons he gave was that not all the testimony was given under oath. Uh, The chair of the commission clarified that, you know, an ethics hearing isn't a court and being under oath isn't actually necessary. He should know he's a retired judge. Hmm. Um, But I think eventually the chair did seem to get a little tired of the repeated interjections. You want her under oath? Do you? I believe her testimony is closed. We move, we have moved to strike it on the basis that it was unsworn. I am permitted you to make raise these objections. Raise your right hand, please. You solemnly swear affirm the facts and matters to which you have already testified were accurate to the best of your knowledge. Yes, I do. So under God. Thank you. You may have a seat. So, so that's the chair of the commission kind of retroactively putting um, one of the complainants, Peggy Kingsbury, under oath to kind of satisfy the the lawyer's concerns there. Uh, so, how did they ultimately determine that she had violated the ethics code? So I think what's important to note here is uh, 
what was kind of splashy about this complaint or what, what drew a lot of people's attention, got a lot of people ha- people's tackles up, was that they felt, you know, that Hansen's remarks or complaints against the uh, Franklin Justice and Equity Coalition were racially charged or racist. Um, but that's not actually what she got in trouble for. Um, what got her in trouble here was that she requested an equal donation on behalf of the African-American Heritage Society, um, which viol- which they found violated two sections of the uh, Franklin Municipal Code, sections 1, 808, and 805, um, which prohibit someone, fr- uh, like a, a public official, from requesting gifts or privileges on someone else's behalf. Mm. Um, and so in that email, because she identified herself as an alderman and then requested a donation for an organization. They found that's what had actually violated the ethics code there. So th- this isn't the first time Hansen has attracted some controversy this year. Tell me about that. Yeah, so this isn't actually even the first time an ethics hearing got called for her. Um, earlier this year, uh, Hansen went on a, a local conservative podcast and made some remarks about the Covenant School shooting. Um, you know, she said she knew the motivations behind it and that it had to do with a love triangle, which, you know, understandably made a lot of people very upset, very mm-hmm. angry, um, and actually attracted over five dozen uh, citizen complaints about her. Uh, ultimately, the Ethics Commission found that these didn't rise to the level of an ethics violation um, and were protected by the First Amendment, even if they acknowledged that they were very upsetting or distasteful. So I think it, it that's kind of an interesting example of how what an ethics hearing is is actually very limited, and what an what an ethics violation for a public official is is actually very limited, um, and and it's not about you know making distasteful comments, um, but that that kind of drew a lot of attention. The other thing is she made some comments about Franklin Pride, um, which had gotten a lot of heat over last year's drag performances. Um, she's also the real estate agent for Brad Lewis, um, who uh, is the owner of the Lewis Country Store, which earlier this year was found by a Southern Poverty Law Center report to be hosting uh, white supremacist training sessions. Um, and, uh, you know, I actually reached out her for, to her for that story as well. Um, and she uh, did not get back to me about whether she had any knowledge of that. Um, and then, of course, she's also running for mayor of Franklin. Um, she missed some of the filing deadlines, but it looks like she still is running for mayor of Franklin. Um, and for everyone listening, uh, the general election for uh Franklin is October 24th, so keep that on your radar. Okay, so the commission found that she violated the ethics code. What comes next? Again, I do want to mention that I reached out to Alderman Hansen for comment. Uh, I haven't heard back at this time. Um, After they found that she had violated the ethics code um, or the Franklin Municipal Code, they did recommend censuring her. So just to clarify, an ethics commission is actually pretty limited in what they can do once they find someone has violated the code. Um, so they sent a recommendation to the mayor of Bo- mayor um, and alderman board on which uh, Hansen sits and recommended that they censure her. Hmm. Um, it's not super clear what that means. Could be anything from a formal reprimand. Could potentially get her removed from some committees. Um, it's also worth noting how rare this is. Uh, this is only the second ethics hearing in Franklin's recent history, and the last one actually had to do with a criminal matter. Um, so having an ethics hearing at all is unusual and. I got the sense uh, from some of the city officials I talked to that they're not totally sure what this means because they haven't done it before or it hasn't happened all that often. Um, But it also makes it all the more noteworthy that uh, she's come close to having two hearings in less than a year. All right. Rose Gilbert is WPLN's general assignment reporter. You can find the link to her story on this episode's web post at thisisnashville.org. Rose, thanks for your reporting. Thank you, Khalil. 
We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with a historian and trace our city's history with brothels all the way back to the Civil War. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. Often on the show, we talk about unique aspects of Nashville and Middle Tennessee's history, aspects of our history that are less well known. One of those aspects is our city's history with brothels. It's believed that Nashville was the first city in the United States to legalize prostitution. Now, that didn't last long, but the subsequent outlawing of prostitution didn't shut the industry down. In fact, it thrived in the shadows, taking on new forms with each attempt to drive it out. That history is complex, and here to help us delve into it is Dr. Cal Busey, the official historian for the Davidson County and someone who can help us clarify our city's past. I'm happy to have her here with me today. Dr. Busey, thank you again for being here. Welcome back to This is Nashville. I'm delighted to be here again. So, you know, our city, like so many others, has a history of brothels and prostitution, but you know, we kind of hold this special designation because of the actions taken during the Civil War. Okay, take us take us back to that time. Were brothels a big thing in the city before the Civil War? Yes, brothels were here pretty much uh, uh solidified in the society as soon as the first steamboat started coming up the ten- the Cumberland River and docking at Nashville. This became a huge uh, city of a lot of people coming in and out, goods being brought in and out. And so the people that came on those steamboats, whether they were passengers or workers, they all were coming into the city, which was right there at the riverfront at that time. And uh, men primarily were looking for uh, sex. And so brothels were around from the very beginning. And there were two areas. The brothels always seemed to get located in the very poorest parts of town. And so there were two areas where prostitution and brothels were in existence before the Civil War. One was the area called Black Bottom, which was south of Broadway, uh, butting the river and then going down several blocks. And it was called Black Bottom, not for racial reasons, but because the land there was low and it often flooded any time the river rose. Mm -hmm. And so that was why that because the mud made it so muddy. And of course, that was where poor people were confined more or less to live because they couldn't afford anywhere else. And so as the Steamboat begins bringing immigrants into the city, uh, that population swells. And of course, even though those immigrants were primarily white, uh, they did not speak English. They were Irish, uh, Jewish, uh, German, various other uh, ethnicities. And so consequently, they were very uh, difficult. It was very difficult for them to support themselves. And so some women indeed did turn to prostitution. Now we have another area just above the courthouse uh, where the court metro courthouse is today, the mm-hmm. city square. And that area 
was uh, also a place where poor people lived, but the difference between that location there, which was called Smoky Row and Black Bottom, was that that was where a significant population of Nashville's free blacks lived. And okay. that is one thing about Nashville that makes Nashville very unique among other southern cities, our population of free blacks. And they had all sorts of businesses there. They had barbershops and other things. So so there was sex, traf- sex business here, brothels, if you will, well before the Civil War. And okay. so here come these men, the Union Army. Okay, yeah. So, okay, so talk to me about that. We have brothels. We've got saloons. We've got gambling going on in the streets of Nashville. Then the Civil War takes place. The Union Army comes in. What happened during the war that led to prostitution being legalized? What did the Union Army Army do? Well, they they tried several things, but they finally found the best remedy, which was legalization of prostitution. Most Nashvillians don't know that Nashville was occupied by the Union Army from February 1862 to the end of the Civil War in April 1865. And as a result of that, there were soldiers on the streets. Our capital was occupied by a, a, a group that, that ran the city that Lincoln appointed uh, Andrew Johnson, a former Tennessee senator, to become the military governor of the state. And so here is General Rosencrans, who is bringing soldiers in and out, and he thinks this is a city. It's a very healthy place to be. We have a lot of churches. But indeed, the prostitution business flourished. Mm. So they they tried uh, one thing that didn't work. It, it famously failed, and that was that they found a relatively new steamboat down at the dock that hadn't been used and certainly wasn't being used after the Union Army came in. And so that was called the Idaho. And they rounded up all of these women and then put them on this boat and took them to Louisville. You go upstream, up the Cumberland to the Ohio, and then upstream to Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Now, as a result of that, uh, they thought they would just drop these women off, if you will. But Louisville said, no, they're not getting off the boat. So they then had to go further up the river to Cincinnati. And as the legend of this has expanded over the 160-something years since this event took place, uh, the the story has gotten uh, embellished on, I'm absolutely confident. But one of the things was that when the Idaho, the steamboat, got back to Nashville, the prostitutes had already beat the, beat the 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 steamboat back. back. Here. They got here faster on foot. And the one thing that the the temporary uh, departure of those professional prostitutes, if you will, was that African American women took their place. Mm-hmm. And so you've kind of got these two races competing for the business, but there was plenty of business with the Union Army all over the place in Nashville. Nashville was really one 
one of the safest places to be during the Civil War uh, if you took the Pledge of Allegiance to the, the Union Army after they got here. And so what General Rosencrans finally decided he had to do was to legalize prostitution. Now, this was not just here, you can do whatever you want. You had to register as a prostitute. You had to pay a fee for that. And then every week, you had to have a medical exam because the one thing he was afraid of was that prostitution spread diseases hmm. and he did not want his soldiers unfit to go to battle. Okay, so we're in this place where supply meets the demand, so to speak. And so now there's these regulatory codes for, you know, houses of ill repute, if you will, happening. Okay, so I'm... I'm Question, the United States Army was just okay with all of this? Uh, absolutely. They thought this was a great idea. I think mm. they may have actually tried it in another place or two. But when we had the sesquicentennial of the Civil War, the Smithsonian Magazine ran a long article about it. And they, they it appeared in newspapers all over the country when Nashville legalized prostitution. How did the people of Nashville feel about Union soldiers and prostitutes at the time? Well, frankly, I think the women were greatly relieved because as long as prostitution was legal and men could find women, they would not bother the white women here in town. And so the white women here, it was a very safe place for them to be. And and, and even for that matter, enslaved workers uh, who sometimes actually lived off the premises of the houses of the wealthy people in Nashville, uh, they felt greatly relieved that they weren't going to be attacked by soldiers. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake Alona. We're talking this hour about our city's history with brothels and prostitution with Dr. Carol Busey. You can tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Okay, so. Okay, so you, you you talked to our producer about General Rosecrans. You mentioned him earlier, who wanted he wanted to remove the pr prostitutes, and he took them back. He took them to Louisville. We understand how that famously failed. <laughs> they speedily, quickly got back here. Talk to me about what happened after the Union Army left Nashville in 1855. 65. 1865, pardon me. Um, what? How was prostitution made illegal again? Here. Well, there was a period there where there was neither war nor peace. But when the ex-Confederates regained political power, they took hold. And once again, uh, all of those laws that were temporary and to meet a specific crisis uh, were, were, were made, all of those things were made illegal. And, you know, we forget that until, I guess, the 1960s, maybe, uh, alcohol, there were lots of limits on alcohol being sold here in the city. I remember I interviewed somebody who was very proud to tell me that he had had the first legalized liquor-by-the-drink cocktail hmm. in Davidson County after the law was changed in the 60s. Okay, so the law was changed, and it was illegal to do things, but Dr. Busey, you and I know very well people find a way, particularly when it comes to their vices. So the brothels just kind of went underground in their operations during all this time? Absolutely. And there were still brothels. They got a little more sophisticated in the 
1880s and 90s and up through about 1930 because you have a, a street downtown that is kind of known as Gentleman's Row, mm. and there were some places where you could gamble down there, and everybody in town knew what was going on there. There were a couple of hotels, the Climax and the Noel were down there, and right at the corner of Fourth and Church was the Maxwell House Hotel, which took uh, dinner uh, reservations for the city's elite. And so oh. they created a back door on Church Street so that the dignified white women would not have to see all the riffraff of what was really going on on 4th Avenue. Hmm, interesting. The Climax Hotel, they weren't really trying to make that a secret. No, that doesn't doing. sound too, too, too subtle, does it? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Okay, so it, it, you talked about, okay, so the women didn't want to be seeing the riffraff going in and out of these establishments. What ways did the women of Nashville react to all of this happening? Well, the women have always reacted with the church women coming together to solve what they see as social problems. First, at first, it was orphans in the 1830s who had nowhere to go if both their parents were dead. They created an orphanage. Then they, they saw these immigrant women coming into town with no means of support, and they created the Protestant House of of industry to keep these women off the streets. Now, of course, some of these women, even though they might have been taught to be a domestic or even to operate a sewing machine once the sewing machine had been patented in this country, some of these women realized pretty quickly that the money was really in selling themselves uh, or working in a brothel rather than working in a, a garment factory or doing housework. And so some women saw the financial benefits to this. Now, the the House of Industry was the forerunner for the women's Christian, uh, the the women the. The Women's Christian Temperance Union uh, and also the YWCA, Young Women's Christian Association. Mm -hmm. So these two organizations were very concerned about prostitution. The WCTU, the temperance group, thought that alcohol led men to chase prostitutes. And this was very much a women versus men kind of thing mm -hmm. here. And uh, so the, the YWCA uh, ran a campaign for funding and bought the House of Industry's old property, which wasn't being used, on Vine Street, and then they built the YWCA. And so it was housing for girls, uh, and it really thrived up until World War II, and then these girls wanted to move to apartments. Okay. Now, how did the city's growth, how did urban renewal impact brothels and their, their kind of stronghold in the city? Well, urban renewal is now being looked at through a different lens because it was sold to the city in the 50s after World War II as it's going to make the city better. And you're removing spots that were were identified by the people who run the government and the citizens as blighted. And so in particular, the whole area north of the state capital and even some of the areas around were poor, poor neighborhoods. And that is where prostitution and gambling certainly thrived during that period. And so the idea of urban renewal was to take out all of that 
and then make it look better. And so what they didn't realize urban renewal was doing, they never looked at the downside, which was destroying some black neighborhoods. And downtown Nashville had a thriving black business community that was pretty much decipated by urban renewal when the decision was made to build what was the municipal auditorium there uh, very close to the courthouse. And so urban renewal played a big part and for some to some degree the prostitution but brothels moved to East Nashville and then to Dickerson Road. Well now Dickerson Road is becoming rehabilitated and so where the next area will be I think it will be all disseminated throughout all all of districts all councilmanic districts in Davidson County. Okay, I want to ask you real quick we only have about just a minute left for all these moves that took place, the industry still survived. What does that history tell you about our city? It tells our uh, us about our city that there are some things that just cannot be stopped legally or illegally. They're going to go illegally or illegally. They're going to take place. Dr. Carol Busey is the official historian for Davidson County. Dr. Busey, thank you for being here and explaining this fascinating, fascinating story to us. I always enjoy talking with you. Thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at the recent era of brothels in our city and how sex work impacts us now. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we learned about Nashville's history with brothels and prostitution, made legal during the Civil War and quickly made illegal after the war ended. Prostitution and brothels not only survived in our city during Reconstruction and urban renewal, they thrived for more than 100 years after the end of the Civil War. Those words appeared in the pages of the Nashville scene within, quote, within the adult entertainment industry, it was widely acknowledged that Nashville, the Athens of the South, the buckle of the Bible Belt, boasted a national reputation as a thriving, freewheeling, anything goes, sex for sale, super center, end quote. Kay West is the writer and freelance journalist, and she wrote those words in 2002. Kay, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Hello, and thank you for having me on this. Is, it's funny to hear your words <laughs> read back to you. Uh-huh. Who wrote that? Oh, I did. You wrote those. You wrote those. Tell me, what got you interested interested in the sex work industry at the time? How did you find that story? So I had, um, prior to doing that story, I had already started volunteering with um, what was then called Magdalene and has become Thistle Farms. It was the uh, organization founded by Becca Stevens. And um, and its purpose in the very beginning was to provide um, a place for women coming off the streets with a history of addiction and um, arrest, incarceration for prostitution. So I knew it sort of from that side of it, which was really, as Carol, uh, Dr. Busey was talking about earlier, you know, the Dickerson Road uh, street prostitution side. But also I lived in... Um, 
Well, I've lived in Nashville since 1981, but since 1993, I lived in what is now known as 12 South, but was then not known as 12 South and, and worked at the papers downtown. So anyway, I would often travel the corridor of uh, from downtown to my home on 8th Avenue. And at the time, maybe let's say the late 90s, um, there were so many businesses there that to me, they caught my eye because maybe because my awareness was heightened of, you know, Tokyo Sauna and Cleopatra's Palace and tanning salons and uh, massage parlors. And I thought, surely it was, I mean, it was clear that there were no tanning going on inside of these places. There was no sauna happening in there. And so, you know, I was sort of aware of it, but um, in about 2001, 2002 is when I noticed in the paper that there were some raids taking place on these places that we had all seen for years and years. And, um, and I just decided to find out more about it. I mean, it seemed as almost as if every day um, or every week, there was, you know, a small item in the paper about four different places being shut down, three three more places being shut down. So um, at the time I was, you know, freelance for the scene and I went, um, talked to Don Aaron, who I think is still the spokesperson for the Metro Police Department and said, what's going on? And he put me in touch with uh, Carl Dean, uh, Doug Sloan and, um, and the Vice Department at the time to find out what was happening with these rates. Okay, I'm I'm wondering, it seemed like this was an open secret, like people turned a blind <laughs> eye to all of these establishments. What were folks saying about the areas where these were at the time? You know, I just, at that time, let's just remember, this was almost 25 years ago. 8th Avenue was not what 8th Avenue is now. Um, it was, you know, gritty, and um, there weren't restaurants, there weren't residential Places there was, you know, from downtown, there was sort of coming station, and then you would come from go south on Eighth Avenue, and you would pass by many, many of these places, and you know, pawn shops and liquor stores and used car places and um, you know, medical um, clinics and plasma selling places. It was like any of the other sort of gritty, you know, mm. Nolensville Road, Charlotte Pike what those street, what those roads were, mm. um, those sort of arteries, those gritty, mm, like on the outer border of the city, those sort of gritty arteries were. And people, I don't think people looked. I think they just, if they didn't know they were there, they didn't really see them. If they knew what they were looking for, they would find them, mm. as many of the men who frequented the places well, yeah. In your piece, you talk about two publications that I think helped people find them, the Nashville Times and Extreme Night. These were I exactly. these yeah. those, those were free publications at the time, right? They were free publications. And they, you know, they all they advertised um private services as well. But all of these places had um, you know, ads in those publications. And, you know, I mean, it, I had a for years. I had a, after I wrote this story and had been on several of these raids um, with the police department, I, I had a pen. I mean, they actually, some of these places had swag, which is just so crazy. I had a pen for years from, I can't remember if it was, Do I think it was Dottie's 
But, you know, Dottie's and Kathy, Tokyo Sauna was right on 8th Avenue. There was no, there was nothing hiding it. Um, I just, I don't know if people, I, I just don't think people who were, who were driving from, you know, work downtown to homes in Green Hills or Brentwood or whatever, wherever they were headed on 8th Avenue, really saw it, or if they saw it, took notice of it. Mm. Now, what ignited the process in 2002 where the police started cracking down on the brothels? I think it was a combination of things. It was it, be, it had become increasingly, um, you know, as I said in the story, there were there were many many strip clubs downtown at that time. Many strip clubs. Um, nude dancing was legal as long as it was within the adult entertainment overlay, which was sort of a crazily drawn you know border um, that encompassed a lot of downtown, a lot of south of, of uh, Soho, Sobro. Um, and but the places that had opened, like Tokyo Sauna, like um, Private Dancer. They were permitted to do nude dancing, but what was always illegal was prostitution. I think what ignited it was, I can't recall exactly when development <laughs> south of Broadway began um, in Nashville, um, probably, you know, 20 some years ago. And as that area became a place where where developers and visionaries or, you know, this was pre, you have to, in 2000, the first, very first restaurant opened in the Gulch. The Gulch at that mm. time was nothing but a railroad yard. So, and you look at the Gulch now. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at so Sobro now uh, compared to what it was then, and so it would not do to have places like that on that corridor, mm. um, and it, within that overlay, and I don't even, you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm not well versed enough to know if there is still an adult entertainment overlay. Um, I, I sort of suspect no, because all of the, you know, strip clubs have closed, um, all of those places, certainly. A lot of closed. things has, have closed, and the city mm -hmm. has definitely, uh, let's say, gotten, gotten a cosmetic facelift, and the perception has changed. My next guest is the founder of Intimacy Architect, a healing program, a way to destigmatize sex work and bring sexual healing. I'd, I'd like to introduce Ira Zazir to the show. Ira, thank you so much for being with us. Thank Welcome. you. Thank you for having me. You know, sometimes reporting on this kind of stuff is somewhat sensationalized. You know, people are like, oh, that's salacious. I want to pay attention to it. But Tell us, what are some of the misconceptions that people have these days about sex workers? Um, I think the idea that it's solely transactional and someone is selling their body. I think there are consenting adults making choices about what they're doing for work, for how they are um, exchanging their time and energy and resources. Um, for me, I feel like sex work is the same as you need a dentist or you need a therapist or you need a doctor. There are certain things that we need um, that can only be provided by professionals, by people who have an understanding of that background, of that wheelhouse, of how to hold that space, um, to be able to do so without judgment, with compassion. And so I think that's the biggest misunderstanding is that it's, you know, everyone is like a victim to this, that, you know, you no one would choose to do this. Um, but actually there are people who, you know, this is a very, for me personally, um, this has been 
something that impacted my own life as a on, on part of my path of healing sexual trauma. Mm. And so it became a really big piece to me when I was initially teaching yoga and seeing people show up who had a lot of abuse trauma or um, were conflicted about religious upbringing, were coming out of the closet late in life and had all of this disconnection with themselves around their sexuality. And for me, you know, none of us would be here without sex. Like we, we literally all owe our lives to mm -hmm. sex. So the fact that we have so much shame and stigma around sexuality, and then I feel like that stigma multiplies when you bring in the idea that somebody would um, do that as a job, that would like mm -hmm. somebody would like take that on as a role. I really appreciate what you said about we wouldn't be here without sex. I once, 2013, I gave a high school graduation speech, and I talked about sex. And I said, oh, before the crowd starts ooing and eyeing, all of us are here. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reason why yeah. we're here. Now, talk to me a little bit more about Intimacy Architect mm -hmm. and how you got started into this. Um, yeah, Intimacy Architect really grew, um, I feel like, out of the universe, people showing up at my door, you know, when I was initially teaching yoga, um, there just was a really big overlap. People would be in, you know, a child's pose and then start crying about something that happened and they weren't able to tell anybody and they just felt really stuck and they had tried therapy or other modalities. Um, and I used to keep my, my personal life, um, and my work life very separate. And, I just realized that there there was an overlap there and that, you know, my personal experience and my lack of judgment around sexuality, my um, my full embrace of sexuality as part of our humanness, as part of our spiritual connection um, was actually a superpower that I had to be able to hold that space so people could come in and, and be able to be their full authentic selves without feeling shame, without feeling dissociation, without feeling um, the, the guilt that kind of keeps them from living their full lives. So, um, so it really emerged and over, you know, um, this started in 2007. So like 15 mm -hmm. years now has, um, has grown and developed. And, you know, I've had clients who are widowers. I've had clients whose, uh, partners are dying of cancer and they just need a place to go, to be held, to be appreciated. Um, you know, people who are coming out late in life, um, realizing that they may be somewhere along the LBGTQ uh, plus spectrum and just wanting someone to hold that space, to see them, to witness them, to allow them to be fully who they are. Um, so Tantra played a big role in that, the idea of like weaving together all of who we are, that there's no part of us that is shameful or taboo. Everything that we are is sacred. Mm. Now, that's a healing and spiritual part mm -hmm. of sex work, but then my next guest was a part of the city's response to the pro proliferation of criminalized sex work. Chris Farrell is, pardon me, Chris Farrell is a former Metro Council member who worked on the Adult Entertainment Ordinance. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me. Okay, so tell me, how much was it of an issue was the adult entertainment industry when you were serving on Metro Council? So my story sort of overlaps with Kay's a little bit. Um, the, um, you know, it wasn't really an issue when I was running for council. The, so it, although there were these, as Kay said, everyone just drove by these establishments, basically on all of the commercial corridors leading in and out of downtown. Um, and there were lots of them. Um, the, um, but uh, in winter of 96, um, two young women working in one of these establishments um, on Church Street were brutally murdered. Um, um, and the, the, the mother of one of these uh, young women 
uh, contacted me and other council members about whether we could do something um, to to regulate these places to make them you know make them safer um, to do something to protect the women you know that were working there. Um, I asked the Metro Legal Department to draft an ordinance. There was another council member who was working on uh, on a bill that we were all afraid was going to be unconstitutional, but that we would be pressured to vote for. Um, and so I asked Metro Legal to draft a bill uh, that would regulate uh, these establishments, all sexual oriented businesses, the strip clubs and the the, the massage parlors, the tanning salons, the the saunas that that Kay referred to, um, and. Uh, that would pass constitutional muster. Um, and they they did draft one um, and it barely could pass count. We, we, we wound up in court, the, the law was passed in 96, um, but it was tied up in court. Um, well, it wasn't completely, uh, it didn't completely come out uh, from under court order for about a decade, but the there was an injunction against it until 2002, well, who, which is actually the timing, which is actually the timing that Kay was talking about when the police started then enforcing that law who, um, was that the it was under injunction for six years. Who was fighting this and and, and on what grounds were they fighting it? <laughs> well, the lawsuit was deja vu versus Metropolitan Government of Davidson County. So um, it was the you know, it was the the strip clubs mostly were funding the 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 fight um the 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 entities that was mostly aimed at were much much smaller and um more dangerous and seedier kind of places um well what, what were you trying to eradicate but it also affected but it also affected the the strip clubs as well what were you looking to eradicate in the city's adult entertainment industry with those more kind of salacious and shady operations those those unsafe you know, sort of uh, environments um, that were, I mean, that, that Kate was talking about the, you know, the, the saunas, the the massage parlors, you know, those kind of establishments that lined 8th Avenue and 12th Avenue and Church Street and, and other of the, you know, um, main corridors in and out of downtown. Mm. Now, Kay, you were able to go with police when they raided the establishments. Can you tell us what you saw? And I was, and I want to um, add to what Chris is saying. Um, first, I want to say, I said, I, I really admire and respect what she's doing. Um, but I want to add to what Chris said about the, I I, I wrote a story years later um, about that tanning, so the tanning salon murders, as they were called. What, um, it was just so striking to me. Those girls were like 18 and 19 years old. They were college, it was just that they were left so unprotected in that establishment. And that's what I found in these raids that I went on was here are women, young women um, working in the establishments. They're most of the time that they're in these places, they're naked or half naked or barely clothed and barefoot. And there is no security. There is the owners aren't on site. There's no one at all watching out for their safety, for their well-being, they were in such vulnerable positions. Maybe not as vulnerable as women working, um, walking Dickerson Pike, hmm. um, women that I knew as well and that um, I walked with and worked with. But they were left so unprotected 
um, by anything. They were in danger of being arrested. They were in danger of being assaulted. They were in danger of being raped. They were in danger of being robbed. Um, and then they were, you know, they were arrested. Um, and I think at that time, I, I think the, the police um, saw them as victims. But, you know, the I don't know that um, I don't know that anyone else did you're, you're um, kind of referring to the but, stigma that's there yes one, one question yes. And, i'm sorry go, yeah, ahead. go ahead i was just thinking like when here we have these women who are working at these massage parlors at these tanning salons at these at these strip clubs when what, what did they say to you about the busiest times for them um that <laughs> i asked them what their busiest times were and interestingly um the busy times were they called them church church time. Hmm. So it was often what we know, what many in the South know as Sunday school time. So, you know, there's depending on your church, um, there may be a church service, and then after church service is Sunday school for kids hmm. and you know, adults sometimes too. And um, they noticed that there was a major uptick in business in sort of that hour when um when Sunday school is taking place, so the the mom or or the yeah the mom is is taking or or <laughs> teaching Sunday school at the church, and the dads are going out mm. for a cup of coffee and something else. You know, and also um, fight football Sunday. Football well, Sunday was always huge business, um, usually after the game. Or, yeah. What, yeah, what's What's interesting that. to me is that we live in this place that's big on faith, yet we have this yes. thriving and notorious reputation for sex mm -hmm. work. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, Ira, when when Kay was telling, saying that, hey, mm -hmm. church Sunday school hour is the top hour mm -hmm. for these ladies back then, what, what comes to your mind? I saw you nodding. I, I mean, I've had clients who are pastors, you know, who, who feel trapped and stuck and, um, and without an outlet to be who they are because they've built this entire world not only for themselves, but that their representatives, you know, in front of all these other people of, of what they think they're supposed to be, but it isn't authentically who they are. And I, I mean, I think at our root, you know, our disconnection from our spirituality and our sexuality is a really key piece in this that, you know, we're often socialized and, and raised, especially in places here like the Bible Belt to, um, to have such shame around our sexuality and, um, and this idea of damnation around it, that there's just such a, a deep disassociation from who you are as a human being. And I think that leads into this dehumanizing of people who are showing up in this space. And, you know, ultimately, if we could decriminalize sex work, I think we would actually see a lot less of this violence and we'd actually be able to provide a space that allowed consenting adults to make choices. You know, because, you know, Kay, you've experienced, you, you know, people who were coerced or forced into sex work. And then we have folks like Ira who chose to get into sex work. And, you know, today we've got the advent of pornography. We've got OnlyFans. We've got a lot of people who are choosing to take this work on and still people who are being forced in this. Kay, tell me this real quick. From your experience, you've worked with people who have suffered trauma. I would like to hear this from all of you, actually. Kay, we'll start with you. How can we balance the complexities of sex work and what it means in our society? Oh, that's, uh, I don't know that I feel. That's a tough question to ask with two and yeah, a half minutes left. That's a tough left. question. And, you know, and I, and I also, I, I agree completely with what, what Iris said about, you know, when you're denying and repressing something, 
it leads to acting out that in in different ways, whether it's, you know, repressing your homosexuality or repressing your sexuality. Um, you know, I um I just wish that um yeah, I, I, it's just hard to say, you know, with the, the women that I worked with at Magdalene, almost without question, had been sexually traumatized as youth. And so if there was a more of an avenue to um, be able to report that, to be able to be taken seriously, to be believed, to be helped and healed, um, I think it's just all part of sexual health and healing. Chris, what should we be keeping in mind as we move forward in a world that's dominated by the positives and, seg- and negatives of sex work? I, I don't know that I'm really qualified to answer that question. Um, you know, I mean, I my involvement with this was very limited in the mid-90s, you know, around this compelling case and this mother who asked me to you know, try and do mm-hmm. something to make sure this didn't happen to, you know, an, a, another another mother's daughter. So someone I, else left it after that. I understand that, but we're all human beings, you know, and uh, we've all been there, so to speak. Um, real quick, though, you know, Ira, I'm going to leave the last word to you, 30 seconds. Where, what should we be keeping in mind as we move forward? We need the to positives have and negatives. comprehensive sex education. If we actually started, you know, at three and four and five years old, teaching people the proper names for their body parts, teaching them um, sexually age appropriate sex education that would actually prevent, I think, child abuse and thus then people getting trafficked into things. You know, I think the problem is like, how do we go back to the root? Like you don't, you don't pull the people out of the river, right? You see where they're falling in. Like, I feel like where we're falling in is that we don't have um, a shame-free sex education that's comprehensive. I want to thank my guests for this. We're going to come back to this. Trust me, we are going to have this conversation again. I want to thank my guests, Iris Azir with the Intimacy Architect, who is the Intimacy Architect, former council, Metro Council member Chris Farrell and freelance journalist Kay West. Thank you all so much for being with us today. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Magnolia McKay. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Demetria Kalo Demos. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. You can always tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>